How's it going, everyone? Uh, Rue Campbell here for episode 28 of Cloud Conversations. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm Rue, as not so always, because I've been missing a few episodes lately, but I'm joined tonight by Pete. Uh, Pete, how are you doing? Rue, yeah, I'm grand. Uh, really good to be back. I've missed a, a couple here and there myself recently, but um, but you've not missed that many. You were on the last one, so don't That's give yourself a hard time. Just, everyone hurts. <laughs> everyone I miss hurts. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But uh, no, it's good to be here. It's good to be back. And um, I'm, I'm really delighted to welcome our amazing guest to the show today, who is uh, John Grushuk from Microsoft. Welcome, John. How are you today? Hey, Peter. Hey, Rue. Uh, doing well. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. Really, really good to have you here. Absolutely. And uh, just for our uh, listeners and uh, viewers, would you mind just giving a, a little introduction to, you, to yourself, John, where, where, how you've got to where you are today and what you do? And uh, I said that backwards, but uh, I'm clearly out of practice missing one show, but <laughs> I'll shut up and let you introduce yourself. <laughs> no, yeah. Th uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, currently I sit on uh, our Microsoft Teams side of the business uh, and help own anything Teams, uh, security, compliance, privacy related. Uh, I really extend that anything collaboration related. Uh, but I started out in uh, Microsoft Consulting Services, or the acronym is MCS, so you'll hear people say. Mm -hmm. I was working on Office 365 deployments, Azure workloads, kind of all that early uh, stuff about seven years ago. Uh, it was a ton of fun, uh, Windows, Office migrations, all that greatness. Um, and spent uh, you know some time doing that, and then I moved over to corporate Microsoft to help uh, work on Office 365 technical readiness. Uh, which evolved into uh, the great Microsoft 365 where we are now. So uh, with, you know, doing a lot of stuff with Microsoft Learn and, and other kind of field uh, readiness assets and customers and uh, our great MVPs. And um, right before the pandemic, uh, switched over to, uh, yeah, the, the team's role, which uh, has been mm -hmm. awesome uh, and really exciting working on uh, one of the, if not fastest growing products uh, in the company. Wow, yeah. No, that's good timing, switching over to Teams just before mm. COVID. You know, that must, that must have been a bit of a roller coaster, right? Uh, thrown in at the deep end, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. And it was uh, it was uh, good for me, too, just to, to do something different. Uh, I had uh, really, you know, my time at Microsoft uh, in the Office 365 world, a lot of email, uh, a lot of uh, Office and Windows migrations and, and you know, Config Manager, uh, task sequences and all that stuff. So uh, while Teams still fits in that spectrum of Office 365, you know, collab services or M365 now, um, it was just something completely different. And then also, um, you know, with the uh, the pandemic, the heightened increase of, you know, security on video conferencing, even from mm. the consumer world, mm. uh, has been a really uh, insightful and, and cool thing for me to get to work on and just understand, uh, you know, what are the security concerns? And, and from an organizational standpoint, there's compliance and, and stuff like that. But, you know, what are the security and privacy concerns of video collaboration and just general collaborating in, in general, which... Uh, yeah, it's just been exciting to, you know, undiscover or, you know, uncover those challenges and discover, you know, what is what should be best practices and not just for Microsoft Teams, but uh, mm. across the industry. Right. Like um, whether it's a, a video, uh, you know, a podcast or anything or whether it's friends getting together to, to play game night, you know, what should be the basic expectations for your security and your pri your privacy when you use those services? Yeah, mm. no, it's, it's a good point. You, you mentioned how it's kind of also become. Uh, of concern in the consumer space because I know thinking back uh, probably over a year probably over a year ago now uh, there were certain you know you'd see news articles about the security of 
another product that will go unnamed, uh, you know, talking about end-to-end encryption things. Hmm. So how do you, where do you see folks looking at and thinking, well, here are my main security concerns? Because I'll be honest, when I think about end-to-end encryption, I think, yeah, it's important. But if I'm putting in my top five list, that's maybe not there. So how do you approach that? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, yeah, it's a, it was a very uh, you know controversial thing when that happened, uh, because as we found across the uh, entire industry, uh, including you know some tech experts, there was just kind of a, um, a misperception on what end-to-end encryption really was. And we have things out there like point-to-point, which is what most industry standards, especially enterprise software uses. And I'll quickly mm-hmm. just share... Uh, the reason why point-to-point or uh, what Microsoft calls in transit and at rest is so important is because the customer or enterprise needs to be able to decrypt that traffic or that content when they need to. It's their data. So mm. in true end-to-end fashion, it means as soon as Peter sends it to you, Rue, right, that nothing could be decrypted until you receive it, which yeah. as an organization, they own that data and they need to be able to access it when they need to. So um, that was a really tough thing to, to, to work with, you know, press, analysts, customers, all types of, uh, even uh, government organizations and explain, hey, this is what it is and, and why it could be an actual issue for you. So there was a lot of education in that space. And so I agree, uh, end-to-end encryption is great for consumer services when I need to text Peter and, and you know, talk about some strategy for game night against Yuru. I don't want anyone to be able to decrypt <laughs> that. Uh, but when we talk about an organization, there are um, not just from a, uh, internal perspective, but there's compliance obligations and understanding what yeah. that content is. And when you think about uh, this was an, a scenario that actually came up was when we started explaining to customers what end-to-end encryption meant, when they realized they couldn't record an end-to-end encrypted meeting, they were like, well, then we don't want it. And yeah. so, yeah, a lot of challenges like that. So I, I do think it's a great consumer service, but Rue, you hit something key there. It's 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 a when it's necessary, right? It's it, to call it a default on, I think when we talk about maybe straight SMS or texting, like maybe there, but when we talk about organizational services, it's definitely a nice to have when it fits this very specific scenario. Um, but outside that, I think the other big one, of course, is is just the respect of privacy. You know, what are you mm-hmm. able to uh, uncover from that? Is there any type of data that's being leveraged and being sold on behalf of the user, organized to build a profile on them, all that stuff, you know, essentially... Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, of course, performance and network-related things that even in a consumer service, I think it's fair to capture just to help improve the service. But we don't want to be able to assess and say that, hey, you know, every time Rue joins from this uh, you know, IP address or this spot, this happens. Like, we need to obfuscate all that and make sure that that, that end user is not being able to be targeted or, or really, uh, you know, identified, right? So I think that's mm-hmm. uh, across organizations and across consumer services. I do think that that kind of anonymization is, is important. Oops, for, I can't say that word. Uh, obfuscate, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, uh, I was struggling with there's that. There's an one. irony in not being able to say the word obfuscate, <laughs> isn't it? I think. <laughs> yeah, I think there probably is. But, uh, so how much of a, um, a transition was it for you, John, to move over into the, this space of security and compliance from your previous roles? Was it much of a, a learning curve for you or did you slot right in and it come to you naturally? No, it, it definitely was a learning curve, right? Um, and I think I, I understood a lot of like, uh, funnily enough, the like the endpoint management side of it, uh, coming from that side of the business, and you know how to secure teams on a phone and all that type of stuff. And I gravitated to that really quickly. But uh, a lot of these kind of individual problems of, uh, or problems is a strong word, but things of, of privacy concerns and you know how to surface data correctly from an organizational standpoint, and uh, just how users work and collaborate with each other. Yeah, of course. 
us three in the room, we might have an idea of how things should work, but there's always how end users actually do things. So uh, that was, I think, a little bit more of a learning curve because I traditionally worked a lot with IT and, and admins um, versus you know having to understand how end users are going to go around and break things uh, or, or try and circumvent security measures. So mm. that was a learning curve for me to be much more in the end user mindset versus, again, in the world of uh, task sequencing and all this stuff. It's kind of brute force. Um, so this was, yeah, just uh, definitely, you know, seeing the end user perspective uh, is, a, is a challenge, especially with how quick technology moves. <laughs> yeah, good point. And do you find, because again, I'm, I and I know a lot of our listeners and viewers, they're, uh, they're in the consultancy uh, mm-hmm. business, I guess. So you're right as far as most of our communication is with other IT folks, right? When, when you say you had to make that shift to understanding what the end user was like, I mean, how... How great is the disparity between how the system administrator sees things and how the end user sees things? Is it is it that different? Yeah, it's. Uh, I would love your two opinions on this too. I think uh, it can be, and and mm. a good organization is bridging that gap. And so, what I like mm. to challenge myself is uh, across all spectrums is like remove myself from being that IT admin uh, and and just try and put myself as the end user shoes. If I receive this email or this communication or this training. Do I actually understand what the point of it is? So as I craft, you know, advisories or tips and tricks on, on safe collaboration, whatever it is, uh, I'll work with peers and also try and look at it myself and be like, do they get the takeaway that they should be doing this? If not, like, do I need to shorten it? All that type of stuff. So I think, you know, peer evaluation and trying to find other people that can wear that hat for you and, and do that, you know, second set of eyes is, uh, has been a huge learning step for me because there is always going to be some differences because you have to figure out how to communicate and get them to understand. But um, I learned this actually funny enough with, uh, you know, exchange migration. Uh, Mm. You know, if the user doesn't see a benefit from it and you make it too complex, they're not going to buy into your system, right? And so I I think that's something I learned from the consulting world in these kind of adoption change comms type uh, change management scenarios is you have to make sure that the end user is, you know, clearly understanding what the benefit is, articulate to them what they need to do and why they should care. Um, and then you'll get a, a much higher buy-in. So um, I think it's always something, though, in the consulting world that is, that is a bit challenging is speaking to end users and, and bridging that gap. But I, I do think it, it helps if you can use peers and, and kind of you know, reset yourself and look at this and say, if I receive this email and this you know, instruction, would I understand what to do? Um, mm. So Yeah, it's, it's a good point. The more you... The more you know about something, the easier it is to make assumptions. Everyone else will mm. know that as well, right? And it can—it's difficult, isn't it? You know, you're kind of—you uh, know that you need to be empathetic, but actually doing it is a different thing. Mm. Uh, it's very yeah. hard to let go of your own learned behavior, isn't it? And put yourself in in the shoes of another. Um, yeah. When you, when you know something so well and so inside out as as we as administrators tend to, it's it's near impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <absolutely. laughs> I would say I think uh, something you you know all of us probably and and your audience uh, you know empathize with is you know think about when you've written a, a technical document or uh, you know specification and you're so close to it uh, that you need someone else to take a look at it because you understand it so well that someone can can read it like this makes no sense and you're like yeah it does if you do A B C D and they're like well you can't do that so yeah uh, I I do liken it to that of like you know when you really are close to a product or something or a specification. You need someone else to just come in with fresh eyes and fresh mindset to maybe give you some helpful feedback and pointers. So I liken that to end user. You really need someone to be able to come in there and say, like, 
hey, I think you're missing this or, you know, just validate that what you have in there is good. So I really do uh, use a lot of kind of second set of eyes, probably to the 10th degree uh, for these end user comms. And it's been a learning experience. Same thing with, you know, working with, uh, you know, high level execs or press analysts. Like it's easy to oversimplify, you know, the team's admin center and how things work. And sometimes we have to really, you know, increase that altitude level and explain and make sure people understand the basics of it, which, uh, you know, tech geeks like us, we can jump into it too quick. So I always trying to, you know, try, challenge myself with that. And sometimes it's just practicing on other people in the business or other, or, you know, people just working on those conversations to set everything correctly and then start to open from there where um, you can kind of get into a little bit deeper explanation. Yeah, no, good point. And when, when we talk about working with others, I know that because uh, you write kind of a bunch, uh, well, a ton of blogs <laughs> for the, the tech community and a lot of them are around, you know, security, compliance, data protection, governance and things. And one of the things you mention in those blogs is regards to getting other organizational units involved, right? So getting the mm -hmm. HR team involved, getting legal involved in so that they're helping, although it might be IT that implement your compliance strategy, it's these other folks that really have to own it, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what's the best way to approach that, and how do you how do you talk legal? How do you talk HR when that's not really our language as IT geeks? Yeah, it is, and and this is a really challenging thing that we saw across. You know, I go back to the Office three sixty five enablement days where you had to start to get all these different kind of business groups together and make sure they understand what their roles and responsibilities are and why they need to buy in. Um, yeah. And so I, I think uh, one of the key things that I learned that I thought was most impactful in working with other orgs uh, is, you know, designating business champions. So whether it's mm. at the department level or, uh, you know, business group level, you need people that have a vested interest in, in, in this plan succeeding. So, um, you know, designating champions and, and being clear on those R&Rs. And then also, uh, this sounds obvious, but you have to use a reasonable schedule that allows for everyone to participate and act on those action <laughs> items. So. Mm. Sometimes I would be a part of these, you know, war room style champions that were, were we were meeting every week and, and people didn't even have a chance to go and act on these feedback or action items or research because they have a normal day job that they have to go and do after this meeting that yep. next week would roll around and, and, you know, nothing got done. So I think, you know, champion is the first part and then, you know, reasonable timeline and schedule uh, that allows you to proceed forward, but still get, you know, moments be done. Um, and then lastly, I think, you know, there has to be a, are, are a benefit to participating. It can't just be a, you know, a mandated requirement mm. that, uh, you know, Rue, you need to be a part of this because you're the finance lead. Mm. Uh, you know, when we talk about developing career-wise, and this is something that I think businesses can really do is like, hey, that should be an achievement for you as an individual yeah. in the workplace, right? If you're going to help champion a transition to teams or to, uh, ex you know, exchange online or SharePoint online, whatever it is, like that's bringing value to the company. And so I think, I've seen some, you know, organizations do this very successfully where they get people that are championing these things and they let them know that, hey, this is a huge, you know, value add to the organization and a huge benefit. So whether it's, um, you know, compensation rewards or even just, you know, as simple as, as, you know, some type of award or a launch or little things that say, hey, you know, this is a huge, you know, impact to the business and we want to thank you for it because it truly is. And so you need to make sure that these champions are, mm. are being, you know, rewarded and, and, uh, yeah, just rewarded for the, the contribution that they're making on such a monumental uh, impact. Completely, yeah. There's two things that I always go to when selecting champions or, or getting into those discussions. And one is um, obviously having sort of selecting relevant people, as you say, 
who will evangelize and tell the story. But those people should uh, definitely not be IT people. They should be from a cross-section of the business because it's one thing to sit in a canteen area at lunchtime and have an IT person say, this technology that we're putting in is going to be great and everyone else is just going to go, oh, your yeah. your <laughs> IT blog got off on one again. But if somebody outside of that is, is saying, no, this is really good, this is going to change the way we work, that's brilliant. By the same token, the other type of people that I always encourage customers to involve are the ones who might be the most resistant, the ones who will ask the difficult questions because yeah. you're going to come up against them sooner or later in the journey, so you might as well get them involved at the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Mm. It's what there's a there's a phrase for that kind of parent. You want uh, it's like so. See if you're having an argument with someone, you want to go in with the best counter arguments. You don't want to have arguments mm. with only people who you can easily throw away, right? And that's called mm-hmm. so. It's something I kind of only heard about recently. It's called steel manning, where rather <laughs> it's the opposite of straw manning. So you do a steel man, and if you can integrate that with your kind of adoption, it's like, well, you take the legitimate argument someone might have against doing whatever in Office 365, and you work with them to solve it. And if you work with that, the hard ones, then the easy ones, well, they're going to be even easier, right? So I think that's yeah. a really good point. Work with the folk that are stubborn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, to, to close that out too, it's uh, I agree with, with what you both said uh, overwhelmingly. And um the other thing is to trust that when you find these champions, they're people that know their space, right? And sometimes we can, you know, do this trust but validate thing, which is okay. But when people are being involved like that, you know, you got to trust that they're an expert of finance or accounting or, or the, uh, you know, even the business application that they own. And so when you can ask good questions and challenge them, but um, when you're maybe not liking the answer you get back or, or it seems more difficult, like you can't double down and keep challenging it because you don't like the answer. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, when you find good champions, the great thing is that they know you know, hey, in accounting, we work with this type of data and we have these type of obligations that we work with legal on. Okay, well, legal's in here too. So how do we account this for IT? So, um, you know, sometimes once you get the right people in the room, you have to trust that that they're all experts and, and move forward with that mindset versus not liking the answer an expert gives and try and figure out how do we get a different answer? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a good point because I've, I've been in those kind of... Uh war room i guess you'd call it where you're, yeah. you're in there with the it folks and then the folks who have the you know the they're representing a business unit and in a way you're i've seen it where the primal instinct kicks in where it's like you just want to win the argument right and you don't read you're kind of putting aside what's important for the business and you think no i've made my case and i'm going to win this argument mm-hmm. and it's important to kind of just step aside don't get too attached to it and take mm-hmm. them seriously yeah uh, it folks I think historically, probably not just IT, everyone's guilty of this. It's we can get very attached to our way of doing things, right? And the way we imagine something would happen. And then when someone comes out and says, puts a little pin in the argument that is our balloon, we start panicking and we just go into defensive mode. So, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Mm. Just kind of taking a step back and thinking about, uh, you know, the ways that folks are on that journey and they're getting all these folks involved is your experience that most customers how mature are most customers in your experience on that journey to have governance over their teams and i see you cracking a smile so maybe that gives the answer but (laughs) are we there yet or is there still a lot to be done i think it's a pretty wide-ranging spectrum Uh, i think there are some uh some large organizations that uh have been uh you know 
great enough, or I should say, you know, very thoughtful to work with Microsoft and do a case study on them and share, you know, the challenges and, and the success that they've been able to go through um, and set up the governance and naming conventions and expiration policies and all that. Uh, but I, I'll be super honest and say that, you know, in the broad spectrum, there's still a lot of customers that are trying to figure all this out. And in an even more complex world, uh, you have mergers, divestitures, acquisitions, new businesses coming in, new business units folding that makes us even more complex for IT mm -hmm. that is often understaffed and wearing way too many hats to try and manage. So um, I do think it's a very uh, complex and incredibly challenging space that's always moving. Uh, but we, you know, that's why I think, you know, myself and, and folks like Stephen Rose are so important in that we have to help people understand the adoption side of it. We sit on evangelism on behalf of the product and helping IT. We don't try and sell or even really market anything as much as we want to help IT folks how to understand and, and use these things and govern them. So um, I will share that a lot of customers are wide ranging in the spectrum. I think there's yeah. some um, some basic early steps that you can get going on and just deciding who can create teams. Um, what does the deletion process look like that really help an organization get a good footprint? But from there, it's where it kind of evolves because if you don't have good hygiene practices at initial creation, we've seen that it becomes, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, the wild west, right? There's there's cowboys running around. You have no idea what's going on, who can create what, who can expire what. So uh, I think, you know, a basic thing I always recommend to people is, you know, determine who's going to be able to create groups or, you know, uh, teams and uh, what the default naming conventions might be, how you're going to do, you know, an annual or, or monthly review to make sure you're deleting old teams and stuff like that. So some basic hygiene stuff. And then there's other reactive measures that as your business grows and more people adopt teams or more people use SharePoint and OneDrive, you can make reactive adjustments. Um, but those are kind of the most baseline things I say is, is, you know, really understand who's able to create them because then you can understand, uh, you know, what type of user privileges exist and you can start working with those users directly. But that's usually the first like monumental step in my opinion is determining that. And that's going to kind of determine from that point, whether you need a ticketing system for people to request a team or review mm -hmm. or, or all that greatness. So, um, I think that's the the positive things we've seen a lot of customers get through that. And now it's just kind of the internal uh, processes on, yeah, like how often do we want things to expire? How do we renew stuff? What is, do we need to use a naming convention and all that greatness? Um, and, and that part I think is always going to be, you know, your mileage may vary. Microsoft is going to do it different than Contoso. Contoso is going to do it different than Northwind Traders. Uh, <laughs> and there's no right or wrong way to do it. And we can all share with, hey, these are the challenges we have. Um, but from that side, that standpoint, I think governance is this tricky subject where every company governs things slightly different. So mm. there's not always a one size fits all, which is what makes, you know, you know, shows like yours extremely beneficial for people to be able to tune in and say, oh, okay, you know, again, Contoso is doing it this way. I heard Microsoft is doing it this way. I think we're in the middle of that. So I'm going to take bits yeah. and pieces. So yeah. it's really a space where everyone benefits when we all talk about it without exposing security issues, right? But when we all talk about how we handle things and do things and the decisions we make as IT or even, you know, as business decision makers, we can all learn from each other and take different applications because, I'll wrap it up with this, even teams or, you know, collaboration as a platform, I don't know that there's really one size fits all for that either. So the way that govern it and, and roll it out and adopt it, like everyone uses it slightly different, which is actually, in my opinion, what makes it really cool. So I think the basis of that is just try and absorb what others are doing and listen to what others are doing and find the stuff that fits for you. And mm -hmm. as long as it's not a security or compliance violation internally, <laughs> um, you know, 
it's okay to kind of have different strategies. Mm. Mm. Yep. Compliance is the trickiest yeah. thing, I think, <laughs> without a doubt. And there's a there's a great hashtag, compliance is a team sport. I think um, Eric Atulli of Microsoft and uh, fellow MVP, Joanne Klein, are, are often preaching that uh, that hashtag. And it's so true. You've got to get the right people around the table, the right stakeholders, and force people to take responsibility for, for their areas. Because it's seen, compliance is seen as an IT problem, and it's not. It's a business problem. It ties mm-hmm. into every discipline. Um, and you're going to have internal policies. Uh, do you have a legal team? Are you regulated? This is all going to determine what that journey is going to look like. And you have to crawl, walk, run, and otherwise it'll be a disaster. So, so important to, to, to take people on, on the right journey. And hopefully that's what we can, we can do as consultants and architects and yeah. evangelists. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, word on that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, the, the crawl, walk, run thing. I use that all the time. It's such a cliche. Mm. And I, every time I say it, I'm like, oh, here I go again. But it, it's true, <laughs> right? And there's a lot of the compliance features that are that way because you can so over-engineer them. You look at things like sensitivity labels, you could go crazy, but start simple and get the buy-in first. Yeah. And the other thought that kind of came to mind there was you mentioned that as long as you don't fall foul of some kind of regulatory or significant government problem, if you have if you make the odd problem here or there, then it, that's how you learn, right? It's mm. And it's mm. kind of like you, you don't get from, you don't always get from A to B in a straight line. You kind of go up and down and back and up and, you know what I mean? And it's going to be messy, but mm. IT is all about sorting out the mess, right? It's breaking stuff and then fixing it. So mm. you just kind of have to embrace it and live with it. I know that that's easier said than done when you, you kind of think maybe, maybe as little ago as five years when everything was so centrally controlled by IT, right? Mm. It was like, I mean, when, when at the time they were called Office 365 groups first showed up and end users were going to be able to create these things, it was like, oh, oh what are we doing here? Uh, but now it's kind of like, yeah, user creates a team, who cares? You know, so it's it's just uh, dipping your toes in and then just slowly building up that tolerance and making sure things that, yeah, as far as the organization is concerned, this is working, so let's roll with it. Yeah, and I, I think a, a cool thing for you know consultants or, or IT admins too is uh, kind of a, you know what you both said there is sometimes it's just bringing those uh, options to leadership and it shows value as a consultant or as an individual that says, hey, you know this is how I think it's going to be best to do this. I have a good, better, best. Um, you know mm. these are what we can do. I'm going to propose it to you as as you know the CIO or CEO to to do this. Here's my reasoning on why I think is best, but. It's a good way to bring value too, because to your guys' point, like maybe there's not a, a 100% right way to do it. And you might have a couple of mistakes or things that you learn from it, but at least you can go to your leadership team or, or you know, your your client and say, hey, this is what based on what we need, I think is going to be best um, and will be the most secure, whatever it may be. Uh, and just bring kind of a decision framework to them and, and kind of do all that groundwork to give the options. And um, I think that's always a good way to collaborate. And we talk about getting everyone's buy-in too. And it's like, you know, throw some solutions out there versus, you know, just kind of brainstorming and saying, hey, these are the issues we have. Uh, it seems complex. Like throw some solutions out there and let those other experts in there kind of help you get to that final step. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I also think that helps you as whether it's a consulting form or just an in-house IT person, you're showing initiative to, you know, take leadership on these and, and go through them. And then you also kind of skill yourself up on becoming an expert in that area. And then you can contribute back to the tech community uh, and share those issues with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Nice. Thanks, Buck. Yeah, no, but in, in seriousness, uh, as you both know, the tech community is actually a great space for kind of creativity it. like that, where um, yeah. you know people share scripts or PowerShell, yeah. whatever it may be, of like you know ticketing systems. When when uh, Teams creation first rolled out four or five years ago, whatever it was, um, there was actually a script share there. It was like, hey, here's how, here's how we go through request process, uh, and that wasn't. Microsoft, uh, we did bless it, but it wasn't created by us. And it was something that we evangelized for the tech community because we said, hey, this is awesome. Uh, this, I don't remember if it was an MVP or not, but hey, we're going to evangelize this on their behalf. And so that's what the other cool part is in this space of kind of uncertainty and where there might not always be a right answer that's on docs.microsoft.com. The tech community is that kind of safe space where you can share things like that, what works for you. Uh, again, do your own assessment to make sure you adhere by your guidelines. But uh, that's this space in a nutshell, because uh, I think Rui, you said it, it's also moving so fast that you can't really, you mm -hmm. know, fully understand something. You don't have the time that you kind of have yeah. to make some of these reactive decisions that uh, are okay. We're going to do it this way until maybe a new feature or control comes out for us. So I do mm -hmm. think that's one of the hardest parts is not only are IT understaffed and wearing too many hats, technology is moving faster than we've ever seen it. Mm. <laughs> and teams being the, sort of fastest adopted, <clears throat> the fastest growing product in Microsoft recent history. Mm. Um, phenomenal growth. And then even before pandemic times, how hard is it to keep a hold of things in terms of security and compliance when so much is being pulled into teams, there's so much being surfaced. You've got Viva over here, you've got Yammer over there, you've got third-party apps. How much of a challenge is that to just keep, keep ahead of things? It, yeah, it's a, it's, it is quite a monumental challenge, and that's why, funnily enough, when I kicked off my intro, I, I backed off uh, the team security compliance and just say kind of collaboration, right? Because when mm. we start to pick around the geeky layers, Teams is built on SharePoint. And so um, compared to some of the other you know conferencing services, uh, Teams has so many background processes and services running that, uh, in my view, have to be secure too. Uh, mm. And so it's it's, you know, you can file share something, but is the security there on the SharePoint side? And how does that work? And is the retention there? And does everything work? And so the nice part from our side is with M365, kind of, of that overarching umbrella, we are propagating features out to work across the spectrum, across the ecosystem. So I do work closely with Erica, and, and that's some of the great synchronization that we have and uh, a lot of the great work they're doing on that side. But it really is a monumental effort internally at Microsoft to try and understand how things map out. Does, you know, does something like safe links work across all the office apps and teams uh, mm -hmm. or where doesn't it work? So we can clearly communicate that to, uh, you know, customers and it. And then uh, of course, follow that up, you know, very quickly with this is when you can expect that feature to roll in. So uh, it is a, a very large spider web of, of, you know, moving pieces. But um, I think the thing is to me, it's critical that, uh, I like to call it frictionless collaboration because whether I'm working inside or outside the organization, I need that security to be there and I need it to be, uh, you know, easy for our, our end users to use. Otherwise, they're going to circumvent it. And, and so yeah. that's why I think the importance of uh, people were very hesitant in the single stack vendor idea, especially in security, which I understand that side of it. Uh, we've also seen a more uh, acceptance to it because it means better integration, right? And so there's nothing wrong with, with mix and matching different vendors and third-party software as long as those connections talk to each other. But, you know, if your file goes outside of M365 and into, uh, you know, third-party tooling that can't enforce any type of, you know, protection on it or retention or whatever it does, becomes a scary place. And so um, I think that's my my biggest challenge is like, hey, when things leave 
the secure ecosystem that I know how to talk about, how can we help them understand why that's a risk and, and what they can more mm. importantly do to, you know, mitigate that risk. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it reminds me of, I kind of had the, I was talking to a customer and they were very reluctant to understandably enable the, the, you know, the kind of setting and SharePoint, you know, allow anyone to click this link or open a shared link, right? And they wanted to limit it to folks within the tenant. And it says, okay, but how do you know how, what an email attachment is? As soon as you send that email attachment, it disappears. You have no control over it unless you've got something like sensitivity label on it. But if you share the link, yeah, there's the risk it might get forwarded on, but it's not less of a link than, sorry, not less of a risk than an email attachment getting sent on. But at least you've got that ability to revoke access and you can block mm -hmm. the download and things like that. So it's changing the mindset, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to saying, well, here's everything we can control. So let's utilize it as much as we can. Mm. Yeah. And then from an engineering standpoint, it's uh, back to, I think, Peter, you opened with one of these questions of like, you know, how do we figure out what we need to, to, to innovate in and what do we need to design? So a lot of it's working with customers and even uh, Microsoft itself is a great example uh, because we are such a large workforce that does so many different things about, you know, working remote and traveling and getting to do these awesome conferences where we travel the globe, which means employees like myself using hotel Wi-Fi, using train Wi-Fi, being in unsecured locations that are, are susceptible to security breaches, to, uh, you know, share documents in the completely wrong way, like Rue was mentioning, and, and <laughs> as an attachment uh, mm -hmm. or on a USB stick and just plug it into the PC. So um, we ourselves, also, all, uh, ourselves often assess and understand how do we collaborate? How are we working? How do we need to protect that better? And we work with, you know, global customers and government organizations to ask the same thing. And so that's where you see, you know, roadmap items start to get developed and, and things that get uncovered that are unfortunately risks that maybe we never realized were risks. So again, talking with how quick technology moves, you'll start to kind of find those areas. So that's what also makes this whole collaboration security space so complex is um, people are going to keep the innovating the way that they collaborate. And we can't always, you know, engineer things mm -hmm. quick enough to uh, react to those because people are going to do it quicker than, you know, a six month commit can take. So I think that's the, the challenging part is once we know what we need to fix is it does take, you know, a little bit of, to build it and make sure it's secure. And then of course we want to scale it across M365. And, you know, the cool thing with Satya and our company's uh, vision is we also want to integrate that across, uh, you know, partners and third parties. So uh, I really do believe and buy into this idea of integration across all ecosystems that we need to make things work together. So uh, if I'm going to use an iPhone, that's great. I want Office to work on it, though. Uh, and so I think <laughs> for a consumer standpoint, we all benefit from using different mix matching stuff because we feel it's what works best mm. for us. But I want all of my software vendors to work with each other and talk with each other so that their products work together. Uh, and so productivity wise, it's great. But for me, it, even more of a concern is a security standpoint. Like, let's mm. make sure things talk and have handshakes that that validate that, hey, we can use these things safely and securely. Yeah. If you're going to use the... Uh, um iPhone on, on Office 365, though, please, please use the Outlook app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not the built-in one. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Get, get rid of that. Don't allow it. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, the, another point, actually, sorry, Rue, just very briefly, that yeah, you go. What, you, what you were mentioning about attachments is that always, always, if you're using M365, please do. It's easier than ever now to use modern attachments, as, the, as they're now called, which is basically sharing. Because they appear almost in the same way as traditional attachments, and they're going to be surface yeah. 
things like e-discovery tooling now, which is recently announced, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And that, that's just one of those things that was, uh, you know, a very, I'd say, minor thing that, you know, came about mm. of like, hey, this is how dangerous a, a regular old attachment that everyone got used to is. Uh, because mm. to Ruth's point, as soon as you hit send, that's out there on the internet. And as mm. we know, it's really hard to erase things from the internet, uh, especially if you're a tech geek, you can pretty much find anything out there. And so if you accidentally sent a, as a normal attachment, your you know, business strategy, someone can grab it and it's out there mm. now. Uh, and you can't recall it. You can't really run tracking on it and all that type of stuff. So that's why I'm a big fan of our sensitivity labels or just the idea of you know encryption mm. at the metadata source. So mm. even if I forward uh, a Microsoft email uh, or attachment, that has protection on it to my own Outlook account or Gmail or anything like that. Since it's not John Grushek at Microsoft.com trying to access that from an identity standpoint, I'm shut down. Um, mm. And I, I'm really happy that a lot of, you know, across the industry is moving that way, that we're encrypting things at its, its core level source so that we can use identity as that kind of attribute and, and validate that it is, okay, this is exactly who we want accessing it. Let's yeah. let them see it. Yeah. I mean, you mean, Peter, Total fanboys of <laughs> AIP slash sensitivity levels. It's so powerful. Absolutely. It, 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 again, because one of those things that it doesn't require that much work to do, mm -hmm. right? If I think back to before you had 365 servicing, something like that, you know, and you had an RMS server, not the most straightforward thing to deploy on-prem, right? But now it's, it's, it's the benefit of doing all this through the cloud. Everything's abstracted and you just get, the value in it you just go through a few uis and boom you can encrypt all the data that you need to really yeah. good stuff and i guess kind of thinking about that sensitivity levels there are more and more people know about them because time is on our side but you still find the odd thing that is a real gem that a lot of folk don't know about i'm just like are there any kind of are there any hidden gems that you can kind of speak to or like what's the one feature that you wish more folks were leveraging as part of their yeah, uh, that, yes. I love it. Um, yeah, since it like in uh, a little bit deeper of a feature, I would say sensitivity labels because it's exactly what you both said. And um, I can, I'm not sharing any uh, inside secrets here, but uh, sensitivity labels are for those customers that have adopted it, we get constant requests to integrate it further. Um, yeah. And so again, I'm not saying this is a commit, but one of the areas is, is we got a request that, hey, I'd love to apply a sensitivity label to a team's conversation. Um, mm. And so... We took that feedback and we're looking at different areas like that. And um, but to your point, uh, you know, Rue and Peter, once you get that stood up in that crawl, walk, run model, it becomes easier to apply it, and people natively know, okay, I should apply this sensitivity label if the document contains this. So, mm -hmm. I think it's you know when we talk about encryption and encrypting documents, that alone is enough. But the uh, extension of sensitivity labels across the entire Microsoft 365 ecosystem makes it such a, a valuable feature to uh, adopt, and then. Uh, you know, assuming that you have full adoption and, and this, of course, uh, requires you to have a little bit additional money, but uh, the auto classification side of things yeah. and to be able mm. to crawl through on-prem storage and SharePoint and just automatically rec you know, recognize that, hey, Peter has this document that has 20,000 company credit card uh, numbers in there. It needs to be classified. <laughs> um, yeah. Like that next generation stuff, I think, is really, really cool and you'll keep seeing it evolve. But in general, we've gotten so many requests on sensitivity labels to keep doubling down and building that out that I'd say uh, from a Microsoft investment standpoint, it's worth getting into that stack even at the E3 level. Um, and then the second one, which is going to be beating uh, a drum that you both know, is MFA and, and conditional access <laughs> or, or multi-factor authentication. 
And mm, while it's really yeah, easy to say, uh, even back when I was in consulting days and that was always our first thing to set up for people, we get such resistance because it was complex and then users aren't gonna wanna use it. Um, it doesn't matter what battle you have to fight, be very stern that, hey, we have to enable this um, because mm -hmm. then the greatness you can start to do is with conditional access or even some of the advanced conditional access workloads is you could pivot off of so many different, uh, you know, if then statements and you can look at location changes and possible locations, what type of data you're accessing and do different types of, uh, you know, challenges on that. And so I think uh, based on that, you can really scale your, uh, essentially your authorization and access based on what they're doing. There's a lot of really great innovations we've done there, but at a baseline level, uh, if I'm not on premises and I try and access, you know, company data, I don't have a reason with being asked, you know, to get a prompt. And if you set it up correctly and you have your mobile device, it's super simple. And it's to the yeah. point where I actually use the Microsoft Authenticator app that hmm. uh, I have it across so many different, you know, non-Microsoft services because it's so easy for me. It's one centralized app. I open it. I see 15 different accounts that I have. And the best part for me is uh, across all those secured accounts or whatever they are, <laughs> I know no one's in those unless I get an MFA prompt, right? And so I know that they're secure. And then if I'm you know, randomly sitting around and I see an MFA request, I'm like, okay, someone's trying to breach my account. They weren't breached and now I know to go to change things. So um, I think MFA across all of technology is a very critical thing we all need to get set up. So when we talk about yeah. enterprise data and enterprise you know, organizational data and access, mm -hmm. I think it's like, for me, it's always the number one thing. Um, and I would even challenge like, if you're on-prem, just because you're on-site, if you're accessing secure data, prompt. Like, totally. it is what it is. If you make it easy from an end user standpoint and you make it basic to where it's a push notification or whatever it is, the value's there, right? You can easily convene mm -hmm. to a user that, hey, it's just that simple. We're just validating that it's you. It, whatever it is, it just makes it safer. It's easy for you. They don't think anything about it. And you on the back end know like, Heck, this is a heck of a lot more secure than just letting them go straight in. Yep, hundred percent agree. Because I see that I, I kind of in the same camp. You know, you, you talk about how you can use conditional access and have all these if this then that's and quite a common one. And I've 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 blogged about it and I've said here's how to do it, but don't do it. And that's where if you're on prem, you don't have to do MFA, right? You can have a location based exclusion. But I I'm like no, just do MFA all the things all the time because. Mm. One, if you're using Windows Hello for business, that helps. That makes the whole process a lot smoother. And two, I mean, more and more, we're being able to use passwordless, right? Mm -hmm. You just open mm -hmm. the Authenticator app, punch in the number on your screen, and boom, you're good to go. It's not that hard, right? And don't treat your <laughs> users like chumps. They'll get used to it, and they'll buy mm -hmm. into it if you tell them the story about the security behind it all. Mm, yeah. Exactly. And I think it, it benefits everyone. When, when we as consumers can have multi-factor auth on our accounts and we talk about data breaches that are constantly going on, you're just getting more, more security over your own accounts and stuff like that. And while I can't expose what might have or uh, protect what might have been exposed, I think it's just such a good security hygiene practice um, that by having it more common in the workplace, people can see, hey, this is a good thing to have uh, you know, on a consumer-related uh, product. Mm. Absolutely. I think I read somewhere not too long ago, a few days, last week maybe is even about passwordless saying, is it now the recommended um, method for privileged admins? It is. is. Cool. Yeah. It, uh, that's, I think, a pretty uh, exciting thing that we're shifting, uh, you know, away from is this idea of passwords. You know, a couple of years ago, it, it was really out that uh, it's all about password length. It doesn't 
doesn't matter how complex you want to make it. It's all about how many characters you can put on there so that everyone started doing these, you know, 48 character passwords and, and <laughs> yeah. working with our exchange team and say, hey, we need to be able to do 160 character, whatever it was, right? Working with all these vendors and saying, hey, we need longer passwords. And it's like, you're throwing a Band-Aid on a solution, right? We need to really figure out that how do we essentially prevent a password from ever being, you know, mm. used uh, mm. or breached and, and, and or, uh, taken and used. So I do think multi-factor auth is just, you know, such a critical service to always have as a back end to, as a sanctity to, to know that you're validated. And of course, if you're talking about highly uh, confidential or sensitive information, you could do things like air gaps and all this other stuff. But from a baseline for me, MFA, absolutely. And then through to your point, you know, conditional access it. Um, your end user doesn't go through all that, right? When they go to access something, they don't sit there for 10 minutes and go through all these checkpoints. Mm. They essentially have it happen in real time. And now the even cooler thing is we have something called continuous access evaluation, yeah. which, uh, yeah, when I give you a token that's good for an hour, uh, that's mm. pretty safe, right? You know, it's pretty good. You'd have to really do some crazy stuff or be a, a pretty sophisticated breach uh, or hacker to, to, you know, surprise us but now we're talking about you know by the minute or five minutes you know reassigning mm. that token or refreshing that token making sure that nothing changed and i think that's a very positive way the industry mm. is moving forward across the whole is you know authentication tokens maybe they shouldn't be good for that long even though we think that person is really safe and we can assign mm. you a you know a score uh that says you know rue is 99.9 percent .9 safe no matter what he does well, trust but validate, right? Uh, there's no there's no issue if, if I check your token on the back end, don't impact your service at all and revalidate it. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really cool thing that we're seeing across, again, not just Microsoft, but across the industry is like, hey, these tokens that are really good, let's keep checking them. So let's make sure that that way, you know, there's no man in the middle or, or anyone trying to intervene or uh, intervene there. We can essentially have security assessed in real time uh, as the, the person's you know accessing that information. Mm, I love that feature very much. And um, it's it's been around for a while in preview now, I think, hasn't it, as well? Yeah, it, it has. So um, we're looking to hopefully roll that out to, uh, you know, kind of a full availability. But um, And I think we'll just continue, uh, again, across the industry. I want to be, you know, fair to everyone in the industry. Uh, you'll keep seeing innovations there, right, around authorization <clears throat> and access because that's when we're realizing, like, hey, it really starts at that level. So um, mm. maybe it's as simple as, hey, you know, uh, Peter, your something changed. It's very slight, and it's not a security risk to us. But let's push you an MFA just to validate, right? Like again, mm -hmm. we talk yeah. about everything set up easily enough. Your phone's right there. You just go ahead and approve it. And from an organizational standpoint, you know, okay, it's still Peter. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's it, it's uh, pretty critical to to be able to enforce stuff like that. Uh, and I think from my standpoint, if I had an organization, I'd want to control that authorization and access pretty heavily. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure. Pitching the converted here. Yeah. <laughs> I really am impressed because I mean the uh the buzz phrase is zero trust, right? And yep. uh, I've kind of I've uh been a wee bit critical of the overuse of that phrase, right? And it's it's the whole point is it's not a solution, it's not reinventing the wheel, right? We've had mm. defense in depth for quite a while, but the concept of zero trust is this it's the continual and almost the non-stop evaluating as many signals as you can get right and i do think that certainly over the last six months there's just been so much cool stuff that's really taking that from being a principle to saying well no here's actually stuff that can do it because one of the things uh still in preview is the authentication context mm -hmm. and i think that's really cool insofar as well we've already verified that you can access the sharepoint site 
but now we're diving a little bit deeper right in the stuff you're going to be doing, the actions you're going to be taking. We need that extra step of verification. And to me, it's quite an exciting time, right? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're all, uh, you know, we're geeks. We like toys. We like playing with stuff. And it's yeah. just it's just fun. You know what I mean? It's good to see this stuff happen. Yeah, I, I think it's great to see it, uh, you know, with, within Microsoft, at least, uh, you know, being able to extend that to custom LOB applications that people develop in-house, right? Being able to, yeah. to leverage this massive infrastructure that Microsoft builds out and being able to say, hey, we want to be able to do, you know, conditional access or continuous access evaluation on our LOB app. Because as, you know, as us three know, some finance organ or uh, finance department might have, uh, you know, a business critical application that has all of your finance or accounting data that, You'd want to, you know, triple, quadruple enforce security checks on that. Maybe when that was app was designed, it just didn't have it in there. So when you can integrate it with Azure and, and MCAS and this other stuff, right, we can start to apply policies and really just help secure the entire organization because it's great that new apps and, and apps offered by Microsoft or other providers uh, have a lot of this security built in. We need to help those LOB apps that are literally business critical processes that no one will retire but they have no security on them. We need to help people yeah. transition those and make the change. And um, this isn't always the, the, I think, most commonly accepted approach, but in my opinion, it is on Microsoft and it is on the software giants to help this transition. And we can't just go in there as consultants or organizations and say, hey, you need to fix these apps, right? And I think you started to see that mindset change with things like helping customers migrate their apps to different Windows platforms. We had an uh, entirely free program that if your uh, app didn't, uh, you know, have compatibility with Windows yeah. 10 at the time. Yeah, we, we actually were, hey, let's, let's roll up our sleeves and let's figure this out. And I think uh, I was very impressed by that, not to plug in Microsoft, but I do think <laughs> across the industry, uh, software providers and, and, and big companies really need to help people make that transition with tooling and, and articles and adoption guidance on how to make that happen. Because you can't just tell people, hey, your app needs to be more secure. Tell them how to do it, right? Yep, totally. And to me, it's one of the, it's one of the places where Microsoft kind of stands out against other common household tech names as the support of legacy, right? It's kind of one of the unique selling points of a lot of mm-hmm. Microsoft stuff, right? And mm-hmm. going back from the fact that, you know, if it was a program written for Windows 95, it'll probably still run on Windows 11. <laughs> going all the way from that to stuff like Azure AD App Proxy, where we're mm-hmm. saying we can take your on-prem apps and make them available over the cloud, stuff like that. You know what I mean? I do think it is something that uh, not a lot of the other big cloud players are particularly interested in, right? It only seems to be you guys. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's critical, right? It's exactly what you said, be able to uh, you know secure your entire app ecosystem, uh, whether they're uh, part of the Microsoft stack or not. I, I, I think we really just need to help people build secure applications. That's also respecting data within it and all that greatness. So, yeah, mm, good stuff. I've uh, right. So I've 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 said the praises of Microsoft a lot. So let's switch. <laughs> let's, let's switch. Uh, one of the, just so one question uh, that kind of came up was uh, the the customer key is something mm-hmm. that when I talk to customers, uh, they're a little bit confused by it. And I'll be honest, sometimes I get a bit confused by it insofar as. It provides additional encryption, but I guess the question is, well, why do I need that? Because don't I already trust them? Yeah. Um, great question. Uh, and that, that is a great question. So I'll kind of uh, preset this with just the idea of, um, you know, how applica- or, uh, encryption works in general. Uh, so Teams is built off of Microsoft 365 data encryption, which does work off that uh, encryption in transit and at rest, which we kicked off the show with. 
um, so that end-to-end -end encryption, different types of layers like that snap onto it. Um, and what customer key does is it builds off of M365 data encryption actually at the service level and it allows the customer to bring their own root keys. And um, the advantage to that, and I'll say this tongue in cheek, is that you don't get fined. And what I mean by that is there are organizations based on their regional availability or uh, their uh, industry that are required by law or governing body to provide and control those root encryption keys. And so that's probably the, uh, just to be honest, I'm probably the primary use case uh, for customer key or you know these BYOK scenarios is, um, you know, you could say, you know, is it because you don't trust Microsoft or whoever holds your own keys? I think you're in a bit of a, a, a hole if you don't trust your service provider that you <laughs> yeah. have all your data with. Um, but it, so it's it's really the first way of it. I want to be very clear. It's, it's for a compliance obligation for customers that need to have better management over that. Um, but of course, nothing is stopping you, uh, Rue, if, if Rue Enterprise wants to use customer key to have better control over the keys that you provide. Microsoft is not going to say, no, you can't use that. And so uh, it is just, you know, better control ownership to help make sure that when you talk to legal or, or governing bodies, uh, whether it's, again, um, yeah, an entire union or whether it's a specific, uh, you know, in-state uh, protocol or requirement, you can meet those obligations. And so uh, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't provide end-to-end encryption. It doesn't mean that, um, and I want to be careful when I say this, doesn't mean Microsoft can't access your data because under our legal requirements and, and you know helping you not you know snooping on data we can still access it even though you provide the root key it's just that you're controlling that root key that's provided if you have an right. issue with something a service a microsoft engineer under all of our contractual commitments and obligations will still be able to help you and see your data if that's the situation um, so it's not like hey if you bring your own key you cut microsoft out and you're safeguarding your data your, your data is safeguarded, right? We don't look at it. We don't do anything like that. We have all our commitments out on the uh, trust center. Um, so I do want to make that distinction that it's not something for customers to use to try and hide data from the service provider. Awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, it's, so it is a, a very a geeky compliance feature to put it in the, in the <laughs> most direct terms. Um, Those are the I, best ones. So yeah. And, and so um, it, it is great because it's all in, under the spectrum of things like N10 encryption. When does it make sense? Um, yeah. So, uh, but customer key, yes. And, and another one is multi-geo, which, uh, you know, sort of mm. surrounds mm. data residency. Another very kind of compliance specific uh, feature set that it's great. Um, mm. but I, you know, I would love for every customer to use customer key and multi-geo, but most of them are going mm. to use it when it benefits them and helps mm. them remain compliant versus, mm. uh, just having, you know, extra money to spend. Yeah. That sure. reminds me multi-geo actually. Um, you announced <clears throat> multi-geo for teams at the, at the last Ignite earlier this year. Mm -hmm. Um, so you've not seen much sort of traction on that or have you or, or otherwise? Yeah, it's, it's funny because, um, some of our largest, uh, you know, financial service companies and especially professional services that, you know, I won't name anyone, but, uh, you know, three, 400,000 group orgs that have, you know, much like Microsoft Consulting, uh, they were so quick to adopt this. They were the ones that mm. were really driving it from an internal sense and, and saying, hey, Microsoft, no one is doing this. Uh, go and do it. And so yeah. uh, it was... In some cases, it was pretty much a hard dependency for some organizations mm. with teams, and you talk about work council and all this stuff. So, um, mm. I don't think we've received the pub the publicity. I think it's it's warranted mm. for, and uh, I know it sounds a bit selfish, but uh, it is a huge feature when we talk about go mm. local and what other uh, industry providers attempt to do. Uh, there's nothing anywhere really close to it. Um, 
what I think some of the challenge in it is that uh, I don't try and ever market or, or hype it up as like this end all be all feature everyone should use because it is really for more global organizations mm. that want to be able to say, hey, Peter, you are out of uh, you know the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm just making up data centers here, but hey, we just want your data to sit there based on a regulatory obligation. Um, because what it can be misconfused with is this idea of, you know, like express route or just because your data sits closer to you isn't going to help your network performance. It's to make sure that your data stays within that boundary area. Right. So uh, we will continue to evangelize it because it is a key feature, <laughs> but it's one of those features that um, mm. is being highly adopted in the background because everyone that yeah. wants it is now getting it. We're through the whole kind of, um, uh, you know, mass uh, tenant queue and, and, and getting it enabled and sw switched on. The great part is that if you have uh, existing uh, multi-geo for M365 teams, it just works, which is our favorite phrase in IT. It just <laughs> starts working. Um, so uh, it is, yeah, it is a great feature. If, you, if you're not familiar with it and you're listening to this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, do some research on it, reach out to me, reach out to uh, Rue or Peter to understand why it would fit. Um, but yeah, funnily enough, it is one of those things that's being massively adopted uh, behind the scenes. <laughs> awesome. Good to hear. I guess I should probably check. Are you okay for time? Because I could talk about this stuff forever. But I don't yeah. Oh, to. yeah. I got time. <laughs> I, I, well, whatever your guys' stuff. recording window looks like, uh, good I'm still stuff. good. No, that's cool. So I guess, uh, you know, uh, just kind of thinking more about that, those kind of features in the background. So I guess... Uh, and things like customer key, they're locked behind that E5 license. Uh, and one of the other things that's locked behind E5 is the DLP mm -hmm. and I, for, for Teams anyway. And I guess part of a larger question really is, nobody likes paying more for stuff, right? But we mm -hmm. appreciate that we have to, there has to be a, a hierarchy to the license. And how does the, or can you shed any light on what's the kind of thought process behind when does something become E3 or E5? Is there, there must be, there's obviously a lot of logic behind it, but not always obvious to the users. Yeah, and I, I do think that is a, it is a challenging thing because I'll be very open and honest and say that um, some of that is is at the you know much higher business decision making that I'm uh, a part of. So sure. um, a lot of that is it, you hit the kind of the key there, Rue. It's it's based on internal decision making how it all works. Um, I will say the DLP one is something that we are uh, you know kind of actively looking at internally and trying to make sure that you know the scope of things that we offer as an upsell or additional licensing, whatever makes sense and that also there's value out of it, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, we really don't want to offer things as an E5 or add-on service that really should be bundled with other things and make kind of a better offering. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's something that we're, you know, constantly looking at internally. And I think now that Teams has had a chance to try and, you know, establish maturity a little bit, uh, it's still moving lightning fast, but now it's, you know, the platform is there. I think it's a little bit more stable in certain areas and, and some, uh, much needed features have been innovated and, and delivered upon. We can now start to look at, you know, what is the most commonly used add-on services or security or compliance capabilities that we can, you know, package together for customers to get the most value out of. So, you know, we take a look at whether that's industry-based or regional-based or uh, customer size-based. I think we do a pretty good job in our, you know, SMB or smaller segments and packaging capabilities and features that make sense together. So mm. um, you constantly have, you know, internal business operations teams looking at that type of stuff. So uh, I do hear you loud and clear. And on the consulting side, every time I ask the licensing question like that, I would always get bonked on the head by uh, dozens <laughs> of different people that said, don't ask. Um, and so I, I do understand it's a bit of a black box, especially on the other side mm. of things. But um, believe it or not, uh, there are, you know, large amounts of teams that are looking into that because, 
Uh, it is, of course, you know, getting the return on the value that we want to make sure the mm. customers see, because from a very simple business process standpoint, if customers don't see a value on that add-on service, they're not going to renew it, right? Yeah. And so um, that's, I, I do hear you on the DLP one. That's something that we're trying to look at from an all-up team's perspective. The mm. challenge there is uh, when we talk about collaboration security, right? Uh, it's great to have DLP for uh, E5 is includes the chat and channel conversations, and it's things that you can argue every customer needs. So how do we figure out how to either package more in there or make it kind of more exhaustive across the ecosystem and things like that? So uh, we finally are at a chance where we can start to really hone in on some of those add-on services and features and assess mm. what makes sense to package them together. And um, it just took us a little bit, I'll, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, look, it's, it's one of those things. And I've, uh, you, you go on Twitter and actually Peter wrote a, an article based on the back of a poll about, you know, which of these E5 features would you like to see in E3? Mm -hmm. And the easy answer is all of them because <laughs> less money is, is good for <laughs> From the customer's point of view but uh and you know there are some i think maybe could be justified at lower of license i think putting plan one for the defender for endpoint that is massive mm -hmm. that's great to see but at the same time and i've spoken about this a little bit on twitter uh we talk about how we within it within infosec how much we value cybersecurity, right and it's like well if you value something so much why don't you think there's a cost associated with that, right? And maybe that's me just putting on the kind of uh, uh, monopoly hat and grabbing my money bags. But, you know, I'm kind of thinking like, you know, well, let's put our money where our mouth is, right? If something is so valuable, that's going to have a cost associated with it. So I'm not, you know, I do f f fall into the side of E5 is ultimately worth the price. Yeah, I, I agree E5. Uh, every time I talk to a customer that has E5, uh, I just start naming a ton of stuff that I yeah. know they have paid for and that I want them to light up. And they're just yeah. like, oh, awesome. Um, I agree. I think you summed that up really well, Rue, because for me, a good example of that is the difference between sensitivity labels and auto classification. Sensitivity mm -hmm. labels are a great feature that you can you know, really, as we talked about, need to adopt. And when it first, uh, a couple of years ago, when we first started coming out with it and, and the AIP scanner was introduced, I was like, man, this would be awesome as just a default feature that include because it helps people do this. But yeah. to your point, like, you know, there is an extra value add to that as a service. You can still encrypt your documents. It's just not automatically. So uh, I think there is a really tough line in between that. And I certainly don't envy the people that have to make those decisions um, because I would, yes, give away everything for, for free. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it must be very, very difficult indeed. The, the only one that, I mean, the DLP one is the one that sticks out mm -hmm. for me. That's that's the one that I sort of scratch my head at and I can't quite get why it is where it is. But I'm sure there's a reason uh, that, yeah. I, that I that I don't understand. I mean, uh, when we were talking to Stephen Rose a couple of weeks ago, and uh, well, actually, you might know the answer to this. Well, one thing that frustrated a lot of Teams users for a long time was why the inline replies were not available in the, <laughs> the desktop app for such a long time when they were in the, the mobile versions. And um, I'm sure there was a real technical or logistical reason why, but it'd be, I'm curious, is it, do you know why? Or, um, or can, you, can you share that with us or not? Yeah, without getting too much into stuff, it's just, uh, you know, the way that things are getting shipped um, and, mm. and the way that they fit in. Uh, I is a complexity. I think it was, uh, there was a point there that the uh, off or the mobile app was a little bit more mature than the desktop app, uh, mm. which was quite comical, I think. Um, yeah. 
you know, it, it is what it is sometimes in the way that we're trying to push things in and the way that the Teams app, you know, based on the Electron wrapper and all this was designed. Yep. So you're trying to flight features in, flight features out and understand what the priority is. So, um, you know, in the simplest terms, and I'm not saying this is exactly what happened, but uh, it's also the, the, the challenge of Teams is everyone's fighting to get things in there because we're constantly innovating. So mm. how do we determine whether security, a compliance, a, an update, you know, your you know, a, a delivery optimization update feature or a meeting feature all gets in there because you can only put so much in at a time. Uh, yeah. That again is at a uh, altitude much, much more senior and uh, more important than me that's making those decisions. Um, mm -hmm. But I can share that is one of the challenges as we start to really flight things out there is there's so much that's going into teams we have to make sure that we can do it properly so that when yeah. we when we hit GA and we hit the, uh, and I'll make a joke at Microsoft here, we hit the 5,000 different update rings that we have, um, <laughs> that it works, right? Because when we do get to, uh, there's nothing that's more frustrating for me as a consumer, whether it's a Microsoft product or outside, when I am in a GA ring and I'm getting, you know, flaky builds. Uh, that is very yeah, frustrating to me fun. because I'm all in for doing uh, beta and even alpha type testing, but mm. um, I expect some beta issues. But if I'm on a GA ring, mm -mm, it's got to work. It's got to work as mm, it is. So definitely. Um, there's always that side of it too that uh, we try and ensure when something does hit and ships to GA that there are, you know, it's been smoke tested 10 times over. And and that is, funnily enough, why we have so many insider preview rings now is it mm. keeps flighting and we keep getting yep. to test and, and fidget with stuff. Um, but, yeah, in, in, in general, it's, it's just been so many features trying to come in that we need to validate that they're all going to work properly. And mm. uh, different uh, platforms uh, and applications uh, either at times have easier slipstream or have more challenging ways to get it in. Um, I think mobile apps uh, are pretty fancy these days. And. Uh, a little bit more open. So I think uh, that is why you've seen some features ship into those first, which mm -hmm. it is what it is. We're supposed to empower our, our work life uh, anywhere. So then I'll hop on my team's mobile device. <laughs> mm. Yep. Yep. No, it's, a, it's in a way we're so spoiled compared to what we were maybe 15 years ago, where you have to yeah. wait three years for a feature, <laughs> you know, you wait uh, so long uh, for the next, uh, like, you know, you wait for 2007 and two. 2010 it's uh we don't realize how good we've got it and in yeah. a lot of cases i mean a couple of thoughts come to mind one is that uh being in the mvp program and also working for an elite partner or an elite partner you get a little glimpse behind the curtain at what's on the roadmap that isn't publicly announced mm. and it's there's so much cool stuff right and oftentimes you'll have the conversation with customers and you're just like just just be patient they know yeah. all this stuff they know you want all this stuff just yeah, yeah. you know they're and, not they're not deaf <laughs> you know it's coming yeah mm. i'll say in fairness too uh some of the things uh that we were a little bit behind on uh i think it's fair for for customers and consumers to pressure microsoft to say hey you know like inline replies are one that uh, yeah they really needed to be in there it's it was even harder when people at ignite or other road shows we were doing it as uh you know, company employees, we're showing these things off and every customer is like, we want this, we need this now. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I do I do think the pressure uh, is fair. Uh, I agree that we are, you know, pretty spoiled, but, um, you know, to keep innovating, uh, keep pressuring, you know, uh, Microsoft and engineering and, and software as a whole, I think it's it's fair to uh, have maybe a little bit lofty of demands to, to help, you know, mm -hmm. driving that competition, that innovation. Um, so uh, I appreciate your, your, your kindness to us, but I think that there's also that, that fairness of like, hey, um, kind of that demand and that high demand is what helps drive competition mm. and creates innovation oh, and yeah. helps companies mm. like Microsoft not get, um, you know, complacent. Yeah. I think so. it's important to 
ask these probing questions. I think people would we'd be remiss if we didn't on a show like this. But to, to go to Rue's point, that peek behind the curtain that we are privileged to have as MVPs and working for partners, um, <clears throat> it's important as well to, 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 to tell people that Microsoft really do listen. Uh, they want the opinions of their, the MVPs and the customer of, of everyone, and um, <clears throat> and they do listen. So um, don't don't feel like they don't. So very very important to to know that. Yeah, yeah I, I'll echo and say customer empathy is, uh, in my opinion, not just something <clears throat> that Microsoft does well, but any good mm. software or any any service product company, like you have to listen to what your customers want and you have to understand how they're using your product. Because I'd say that's one of my biggest learnings from the uh, consulting side of the business. When I was working on behalf of product groups is, you know, there's the way that engineering designs it and there's the way that the customer uses it. And Mm. there's probably a middle ground that you'd both need to work together and figure out, okay, this is how best to design it. Because, um, you know, an engineer thinks, okay, if, if everything is great in their environment, they should use it this way. And then the IT you know, folks are sitting there like, our environment is all you know, duct tape and bubble gum and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and it works for us, but your product doesn't work the way that we need it to. And so mm-hmm. um, that's where I think those conversations between Microsoft and customers and being empathetic can help you know, lead to good product innovations because we can make it more flexible than uh, to remain secure and compliant, but to be more adjustable for the way that enterprises or, or organizations uh, across all of you know, size uh, are able to use it. And I think that's a very important thing is, uh, it doesn't mean the engineer designed it wrong, doesn't mean the customer's using it wrong, um, but it's not this simple world where you can just you know build a binary one zero thing and expect everyone to use it. Um, mm. It's a highly adaptable sure. world, and I think we need to build software and products that are somewhat adaptable and agile without sacrificing on core elements. Yep, mm. totally agree. Shifting gears just a little yeah. bit, because otherwise we'll just end up talking about <laughs> compliance until it's past yeah. my head thing. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, I guess, you know, well, on that subject, you know, I could talk about this stuff all day, all night. Total obsessive geek. What do you kind of do to step aside from work? What kind of hobbies, passions, stuff away from teams <laughs> keeps you keeps you ticking yeah uh, i love it uh so you can probably see behind me i have uh, some snowboards on the wall so uh i am a, a pretty active snowboarder uh pretty big junkie at it so uh i'm lucky enough to live here in uh the uh what we call pacific northwest of the united states uh where uh we get some pretty deep snow drops uh, and and a lot of fun riding there and uh, in the uh, off season, a lot of hiking and outdoors living in the Seattle area of uh, Washington. So I'm a big outdoors geek. I love hiking, uh, all that types of stuff and uh, nice. just wandering around. And, um, and then outside of that, I am a technology geek. So video games, TV, sports, anything like that. Uh, I think a lot of us in IT are competition geeks. We love that type of stuff. So uh, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, but yeah, I'd say most of my time is probably spent outdoors, either hiking around or uh, riding around on a, a you know piece of plastic, uh, nice. not always the safest stuff, but it, it's always fun. <laughs> yeah. No, well, you know you've got some lovely scenery up there in Washington, so that's that's pretty cool. And I get so my uh, my wife visited Washington a few years ago. Uh, is it as wet as everyone says it is? Do you like? Because I've heard that it just rains <laughs> all the time. I don't know how true that is. See, it's funny because it it uh, it does rain in terms of like days uh it will be you know wet quite a few days but i grew up in chicago in the midwest part of the united states where we got far more rain accumulation per year than anything out here and so when i moved out here i thought it was kind of funny because i'm a a golfer as well 
and it would be a very slight mist out there and everyone would be inside. And I'm just like, this is a mist. <laughs> like it, it, so it, it's definitely a bit overstated. Uh, it doesn't, you know, talk about like a heavy downpour type rain. It, it's not nearly as enough. And for folks that are, uh, you know, in some of those more Northern European countries that get somewhat similar, uh, yeah. kind of misty. Uh, I like the very, uh, uh, temperate weather, uh, you know, between 40 and, and 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, it makes it always easy. You always just need a light jacket pretty much. Um, yeah. But yeah, you definitely, uh, you you kind of get poked fun at if you have an umbrella out here because you never quite need a full umbrella other than <laughs> like a lot of places will put them right at the doors if it's really raining. Mm. But yeah. Um, right. And I'll say, I also, I'm a big traveler. Uh, I've been lucky enough through work and, and just my personal <laughs> life to uh, get outside the U.S. a lot and go to some really, really great and fantastic places from a cuisine standpoint, uh, culture, all that type of stuff. So uh, pandemic's been tough uh, to not get to, to travel too far, but uh, mm. I've, I've been very fortunate just through even the uh, Microsoft Ignite tour to get to go to some cities that have been really, really fun. And um, the cool part about that is you get to meet with people like yourselves and other people that are um, you know, super appreciative of you being there and they'll show you their culture, their ways, their food, all that stuff. So uh, that is probably the my favorite part about working at Microsoft has been actually the outside travel and uh, nice. getting to work with folks like you. Yeah, fantastic. Is there a particular travel destination that rates the highest for you in all your travels? Somebody oh, um, a favorite. That's a good one. I think uh, the place I've gone to the most that uh, has been that I've enjoyed the most uh, has been Ireland. Uh, just driving around the the country and and scenery just. That's what I'm gravitated towards here in Washington. So nice. uh, every time we've been there, we've had a ton of fun. But yeah, anywhere kind of uh, Ireland. I again, I like the temperate weather. So you know, mm. London and and different places of England, uh, Scotland. Uh, I I will always be on my destination list uh, to to fly to. Yeah, <laughs> he, he knows his audience here, doesn't he? Really? Yeah, yeah. You get terrible <laughs> weather in Scotland, so you like it here. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I have. I think on my my long term to do list is to to take like a two or three week vacation and and go play some golf around up there and uh, just again nice. enjoy that. The people have always been extremely friendly. Uh, you know, the food I think you can pick fun at sometimes, but uh, once you get out into the country, uh, you just get you know these very you know. Close community areas, everyone makes you feel very, very welcomed. And so, um, you know, the adult beverages are great too. I'll plug those in. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've always had a great time uh, between London, Dublin, anywhere across Ireland. Uh, always places that I love, love going back to. Awesome. Good to hear. Well, always happy to have you here. You know? yeah. <laughs> so that's good. I guess uh, we'll, we'll wind down now, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to close with, I guess, I'll just flag. It's a, it's a joke question that we've ended up asking every guest on the show now. Uh, so if you've seen them, I'm assuming you will have. I'll be shocked if he hasn't. Uh, of the Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, two classics of action, which is the best film? Oh. Um, yeah. Drop that bombshell on you to close the show. Yeah, we didn't give you that one of the prep questions. <laughs> we, we left that one out deliberately. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's obviously I... not an easy one, though, because there's a lot of thought going on here. <clears throat> No, yeah, I would like I would probably go with the original T one. Uh, I do like T two a lot, but um, I think uh, any rhythmic series type ones, it's always good to get back into the original, uh, the very first one. Whether even if it's not as quality, uh, it, it 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 was just something new, right? It was something new that you haven't seen before. So I always have an mm. appreciation uh, for things like that, even when the sequel or or further remakes get better when you think about like things like die hard that has, you know, five, six of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're yeah. really cheesy. They're really, awesome. uh, 
Yeah, um, but you know, it, it's just at the time that T1 was 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 really something special, and, and of course, you have uh, Arnold uh, doing his Arnold stuff. So yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. I think Terminator One's in the lead by a long shot now. Yeah, it must yeah. be now after yeah. a very after a very early lead. Terminator Two is just being battered now. They're yeah, very much like my nice. football team, Newcastle United. They, they do that quite <laughs> a lot. Um, so yeah. I can empathize with that. But uh, yeah, awesome. But um, yeah, we we do like to talk about film and TV and stuff on on this show. Uh, Die Hard, just to mention Die Hard. I love. I probably love the first. I mean, the original you can't touch, but two is underrated, and I think three was okay. Three was Four. amazing. Jeremy Irons, yeah, is bad. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. yeah, I didn't do so that justice. Good. I'm completely undersold that <laughs> it was amazing. You're right. Four was watchable, and the last one, the fifth one, I couldn't even watch it all. I was about yeah. 20 minutes in, and I thought, I ain't watching this. Yeah, life's too short. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, life's, life's too short for that. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's uh, it is what it is. But I will say, I I do have a soft spot for T2 because uh, I I do like the uh, the extension to the uh, T1000. So uh, <laughs> I I think a little bit different. You added some mm. flair to it, but um, yeah, I, I'm a I'm a sucker for those long extended uh, series. Not to pick on Terminator, but uh, I'll use Die Hard. They get not quite good at the end of them, but I'm just like, hey, I'm in it. Uh, I'll watch them. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Die Hard yeah. is a, a great movie. You get a bottle of wine on Christmas and, and watch oh, Die yeah. Hard. Oh, yeah, and it is a Christmas <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's, the, that's the true debate, right, is whether it is. So we, we enjoy it, and uh, anytime I do, like, a, a white elephant gift or a Christmas-type scenario, I'll, I'll do, like, a box of wine or some cheese or something like that and, and Die Hard and say, there you go, that's your Christmas evening. and. Awesome. Then it starts that massive debate about whether it's a Christmas movie or not. So. Yeah, <laughs> we don't John, have time you... for that. Blame me. <laughs> <laughs> You've been amazing, my friend. Thank you for sharing so much with us. It's been fantastic. Before we wind up, is there anything else you'd like to to say to the audience and, and how they can potentially reach you if they want to get in touch? So uh, yeah, uh, thank you both uh, very much for having me. I appreciate all that you two have done uh, as part of Ignite and behind the scenes that your community probably doesn't even know about how impactful you are at uh, evangelizing all this stuff and, and uh, holding us as Microsoft accountable for innovation and all that. So uh, kudos to you two both and, and the wider team and, and MVPs. Um, I'll just say I'm on the tech community. Uh, the, I write blogs all the time. I'd love to hear what people want me to write about other than me just picking stuff. Uh, so mm. you can reach me on the tech community. Uh, my email is uh, john.grushchuk at microsoft.com. Mm. You can find me on LinkedIn and other areas. Reach out to me. Tell me what you want me to write about, anything like that, features, whatever it is. And um, outside of that, like, be on the tech community uh, talk with you two as well and uh outside of that uh, i just want to say thanks again and uh i'm sure i'll run across you both at ignite uh and then hopefully in the future we'll be back to some in-person events and we'll maybe get to do Fingers one of crossed. these in person yeah Absolutely. yeah that'll be thanks, amazing man. yeah fantastic stuff thank you so much uh thank you everyone for listening watching however you find us we're, we're on youtube at uh, youtube.com forward slash c forward slash cloud conversations please please subscribe because it helps us so much to continue to bring us great content like this uh let us know what you think of us on anchor podcast as well and apple podcast spotify all the usual give us a, a lovely five-star re review if you think we've earned it and leave us some comments and feedback we always welcome it but um yep. i've been peter rising thank you to our wonderful guest john grushik and as ever my partner in crime 
Rue Campbell. Rue, any final words? Nope, I'm all good. John, pleasure to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, could have gone three hours, but uh, <laughs> yeah, for the sake exactly. of sanity, let's call it a day. <laughs> yeah, f- yeah, future series, right? We'll, we'll, we'll do some again. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, you, you're welcome anytime, my friend. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll, we'll definitely have you back. We can talk for hours, as Rui says. But thanks all again for joining us, and we'll catch you down the road on the next Cloud Conversations. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. Cheers, sure. guys. Bye.